Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome, friends. This is Tent Theology. My name is Chris Marchand. And for the second year in a row, I'm going to offer you my own tent talk on the subject of Christmas. I suppose you might say it's becoming a tradition if you do something more than once. Is it a tradition? A couple of years ago, a few years ago now, I wrote a book called Celebrating the Twelve Days of Christmas. In that book, I started to develop the idea that all seasonal festive celebrations tend to fall into four different categories. Here they are. They're simple. Worship, festive celebrating, service, and rest. These tent talks are giving me the opportunity to better flesh out some of the ideas found in these four foundational principles. The first tent talk was on the idea of service, and today's is going to be about rest. When we come into a holiday, into a season of celebrating, we tend to want to worship, we tend to want to find ways to to party, to celebrate. We also naturally want to just rest and slow down and do nothing. And then there's always this twinge of, yeah, but shouldn't we be doing something to help other people? Now, what you might already be noticing is that the four foundational principles feed into each other. Today, here's what I'm going to offer, that the other three naturally flow out of the principle of rest. I'll give you an example of what I mean. When you have taken time to slow down, you've read that book, you've just enjoyed time with family, well, then you begin to think, ah, I, I need to go serve others. I, I need to give out of my own surplus to bless somebody else. Ah, have you made the connection? Out of our rest comes a desire to serve. So the resting of our holidays flows into the service of others and giving out, pouring out ourselves for others during the holidays. But it's the same thing with a festive celebration, let's say. We've been resting, we've been taking times to, to relax, and then we're like, uh, I'm kind of getting bored of doing nothing. Let's, let's do something fun. Let's do something active. Let's go have a snowball fight. Let's go sledding. Let's fill in the blank. What does that look like for you? Sometimes it's just a board game, and that's, that's enough. I would also argue that uh, resting naturally leads to worship. Resting naturally leads to contemplation, to wanting to think the deeper thoughts, the greater things of our lives that we often can't even co- comprehend because we're going so quickly all the time. That, that little undercurrent of our, of our lives where we think, oh, I need to be... I need to be bettering myself, but I don't have time to slow down. I just have to work. I have to move. I have to keep things going in my life or my family. When we take the moment to not do something, as followers of Christ, we're drawn to worship. And then I would say the natural flow from that self-worship, and I don't mean worship of ourselves, I mean uh, our own personal lives being drawn to worship. I would say we're then drawn to communal worship. Ah, let us come and worship together. Let us do something together as a community. Hence, our Christmas celebrations. But in order for us to get to service and celebrations and communal worship, we first 
have to learn how to rest. Now, I've been wanting to do this tent talk for the better part of a year, but to be quite honest with you, I just haven't had the time to slow down and actually record and research for this podcast. I haven't had time myself to slow down. How do I have time to prepare for a tent talk on rest if I can't even rest myself? I have felt in the midst of preparing for this that how could I possibly give a tent talk? My life is in so many directions. I'm, I feel like I'm just scraping by, getting the things done day by day. Well, I'm not here as, a, as an expert example of how to rest and Sabbath and abide. I'm here to tell you what Christmas offers us as a way of, of teaching us how to model what rest might look like. When I initially began researching for this book on Christmas that I wrote, I was initially interested the most in the individual holidays. So, for example, December 26th is Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day. And on and on it follows. You get the, the, the circumcision of Jesus or the, the, name, the naming of Jesus on January 1st. All the different holidays leading up to Epiphany. I was really interested in all the different traditions and practices, the rituals, that came out of all of these feast days on the church calendar. But what began to become more clear to me was that the 12 days of Christmas were about an extended season of rest. Here's what's interesting about that. And historians often go back to the way that agrarian societies or the feudalistic societies of Europe were organized and structured. So you have this this, uh, society built upon the Lord or whoever has happened to be the aristocrat in charge of the land. And all year, the people around them are just working constantly. And the harvest comes in. And if they're going to kill an animal over the, over the winter, how do they preserve their meats? Well, guess what? It's a lot easier to preserve your meat when it's cold outside. And you can keep it frozen or semi-frozen most of the time. You don't have to dry that meat. You don't have to slaughter it immediately and then eat it. So... The lives of European feudalistic people, agrarian people, naturally slows down during the winter months. So historians look back and go, well, it makes sense that the 12 days of Christmas became established as an extended break, as a long season of kind of doing nothing, because there wasn't much to do. They needed to slow down, and quite frankly, everybody was kind of miserable, except for the lords, of course, the the aristocrats. Therefore... The 12 days of Christmas acted as a release valve, a carrot dangled in front of the peasants of Europe in order to say, oh, at least we get the long break during Christmas. I think that's all very interesting and incredibly true, but here's what we tend to do, tend to do as modern people. We say, oh yeah, but that's not us. We don't need to have this long break because we're not the same kind of society. We're not peasants, but really, are we so different? I would want to counter and ask. I look around at our societies and I see a people that are sleep deprived, that feel the need to constantly be on the clock. We have this concept called PTO, paid time off, where we have to pay into the system of our work in order to feel like we earn back our own times of rest. We incrementally earn our vacation times, our holiday times. We earn them back from our employers. We are a society obsessed with work. We're constantly working. So sure, we don't have maybe some of the more natural 
flows of the cosmic calendar where the daylight wanes and and then also the the agricultural calendar where the harvest is coming in sure our lives are a little we we have transcended that to some extent oh I'll, i'll give you that but are we any less overworked are we any less in need of rest and learning how to sabbath so here's where i want to go here's where i want to start off sabbathing comes out of Genesis, as established by God, as an act of creation. But notice that God's resting was a gift to himself. God rested. And then we see in Exodus, with the children of Israel being delivered out of slavery from Egypt, we see it given as a gift to them. We often see Sabbathing, resting, as put into the context of the Ten Commandments, and thus it was a command, right? It's something they had to do. You have to rest now. It is the law. But what if we inverted our understanding, not as a law that we have to follow, but as a gift to receive? Walter Brueggemann, in his book Sabbath as Resistance, says as much. And he even links the gift of Sabbathing as a way of subverting the slavery that Israel was under in Egypt. The gods of Egypt, the false gods, perpetuated by the pharaohs and by the the system there, told them that their lives were work, that they were not allowed to rest, that in fact their identity was completely bound up into their labor and what they could produce. But here, in the Ten Commandments, God doesn't so much give a command what they had to do, but a release from bondage a release from the false God that our identity is bound up in our labor and what we can produce. And instead, we are told that we can just be allowed to exist and to do nothing. That one day a week, we are reminded that life itself is a precious gift given to us by God. We're liberated to do nothing. And it's beautiful. Brueggemann also notes that the call to Sabbath has a direct impact on our love of neighbor and our love of God. That when we rest, we are freed up to serve those around us, to care for the needs of those around us. When all we do is is labor and work and strive, we begin to serve that false god of work. And then we want to take from our neighbor. We want to covet what is our neighbor's. Everything is competition. Everything is survival. But when we learn to rest that's when we can learn to give out. Jesus says as much in the Gospels when claiming that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift. But isn't it funny what we do? Instead of receiving it as the life-giving gift that God intended, we see it as another law that we never fully live into, but instead break because we're not good at Sabbathing. Perhaps instead, it might be helpful for us to realize that we have given ourselves over to the God of work, the God of commodity, the God of endless striving, just like the ancient Israelites did to the gods of Egypt. Perhaps we need to understand that we can live into the full gift that God has given us by learning how to rest. Let me share a quote from Brueggemann from his first chapter, Sabbath and the First Commandment. Here he's speaking of Israel, but he's also speaking to us. Let them depart the system of endless production in order to enter a world of covenantal fidelity. 
In ancient context, they must depart from the Egyptian system in order to dance and sing freedom. The departure from that same system in our time is not geographical. It is, rather, emotional, liturgical, and economic. It is not an idea, but a practical act. Thus, the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment is an act of trust in the subversive, exodus-causing God of the First Commandment. An act of submission to the restful God of Commandments 1, 2, and 3. Sabbath is a practical divestment, so that neighborly engagement rather than production and consumption define our lives. It is for good reason that Sabbath has long been, for theologically serious Jews, the defining discipline. It is also for good reason that Enlightenment-based autonomous Christians may find the Sabbath commandment the most urgent and the most difficult of all the commandments of Sinai. We are, liberals and conservatives, much inured to Pharaoh's system. For that reason, the departure into restfulness is both urgent and difficult. For our motors are set to run at brick-making speed. To cease, even for a time, the anxious striving for more bricks is to find ourselves with a light burden and an easy yoke. It is now, as then, enough to permit dancing and singing into an alternative life. What I'd like to argue is that the season of Christmas, and by the way, as a reminder, I'm of the opinion that the 12 days of Christmas starts on December 25th and ends with the Feast of the Epiphany, 12 days or so. I would also argue that many of us naturally enter into a week-long Christmas celebration from the 25th until New Year's. We naturally do this. We naturally slow down. I would want to give us the opportunity to see that Christmas season as a true chance to rest and slow down and refresh. Now, the Sabbath is certainly a weekly holiday of sorts. One day of week taken to rest and do nothing, to worship, to spend time with family. But I think we can also look at the witness of Scripture and see that God gave Israel extended celebrations and festivals that could also be called longer Sabbaths within their yearly traditions. And so it is with Christmas. Is there a law to say that we have to take off 12 days or 8 days during Christmas? No, there isn't. But there is a warrant for saying, you know what? At certain times in the year, we slow down and we enjoy life and realize that our identity is not bound up in our work. Perhaps Christmas can once again be established as one of those holidays. Hence, the focus on the 12 days. If we as a culture, as the societies and the communities in which we live, do not become disciples of rest, we learn how to rest in other ways. Our bodies, our minds, our psyches, our spirits, our souls, they force us to rest. This comes out in all kinds of different ways and really unhealthy habits. I mean, the one that we are perhaps most drawn to think of is addictions. We're addicted to sugar, to different foods. Uh, we're addicted to binge-watching uh, television shows. We're addicted to all kinds of substances. I know there's different understandings of substance abuse, but our lives are given over to the substance because normal, ordinary, everyday life is so miserable. We soothe ourselves. We self-medicate in all the various ways possible. What's fascinating 
is that looking back on the history of Christmas traditions, we see the exact same thing. In European society, in various cultures, especially in France and England, there were these traditions called uh, misrule, the Lord of Misrule, the Feast of Fools. What, what happened is a, a number of rituals of social inversion. The powerless, the poor, would be elevated for a day or for a season, and they would be given some kind of pseudo-power by those who were truly in authority the bishops, uh, the magistrates. They would elect a lord of the misrule, a lord, a, a fool, if you will, who would become a bishop, a mock bishop, a mock ruler. And they would be uh, designated, almost like a court gesture, as the ruler of the festivities. This is, by the way, where a lot of people come in and talk about the, the, the pagan origins of, of Saturnalia when it comes to Christmas traditions. There's a lot of truth to that. What would happen, though, is for a brief moment, the pressure valve was released in society. People were allowed to let loose. Men dressed as women, women dressed as men. People that had no power and authority in position would mingle and get drunk. And all manner of debauchery would take place amongst the different classes in society. And people were equalized during this time of misrule. What's even more fascinating is that if you jump to the American South, the antebellum South, during the period of slavery, what you find there is a similar system in place. Slaves were told by their masters that if they work during the whole year, they would be given their time during the Christmas holiday season. Most slaves were never allowed to drink alcohol. They had to find pockets of times to practice their own religion. They were not allowed to make money on their own. They were not allowed to visit relatives. But during Christmas, it was another carrot dangled in front of them. You will be given that time. Sometimes slaves were only given three days, maybe perhaps a week. In the state of Missouri, for instance, slaves were given a month off, five weeks off. They could roam about. They could sell, uh, make their own products and sell them in town and make their own money. What we find is that the masters gave this to them as a little bit of freedom because they knew at the end of it they would go back to their enslavement. Now what happened in the midst of this, uh, and this is where some of these uh, practices, if you've ever heard of the phrase, putting on airs. You ever heard that phrase before? Well, what it means is that uh, slaves would dress up like their masters, or they would affect the voices of their masters. They would, they would read, read aloud and perform as if they were the master. There's also this practice within uh, Europe, and it was popular up until the last century. Uh, the, the, the general term for it is wassailing, wassailing. And bands of people would go around in Europe, and uh, maybe for some of us in America, we, we associate this with something like trick-or-treating during Halloween, where we go from house to house and we ask for a treat. Well, in, in England especially, wassailing is when roving bands of, of people would go around, they would, they would make merry, they would sing carols, they would be bawdy, they would tell jokes, they would put on little skits. And they would uh, dress up in all kinds of different costumes. And they would go from house to house. And what this was was a form of social inversion because the roving bands, in their own way, represented the master. They represented the tax collector. They came calling to receive their due, to receive their payment. Because remember, this was the powerless putting on an air of becoming powerful. 
and they would ask for their payment. So they would go to a, a wealthy establishment, to an estate, all wh wherever the, the wealthier people in their town, their village, their region, and they would bang and make noises. This is where the, the if you've heard of the carol, wassail, wassail, all over the town, there's some threats, if you notice, in the lyrics of the wassailing carol. What is being implied is that in this instance, the wealthy must give up and give a gift to those that have not. Because the have-nots have taken on the role of the wealthy. <laughs> so what they're, what they're going around doing is, is they're, giving their, they're giving out threats as if, well, if you don't pay up, you're going to face the consequences. Hence all the noise, hence all the banging that they would go around. Now, the same thing happened in the South during the era of slavery. There was even a tradition of slaves parading around, dressing up in the finery of their masters, even putting on white face and white wigs and acting as if they were the slave masters. It was implied that they were mocking their masters. It was social subversion. It was their way of having a little bit of power over their masters. But guess what? This was a false form of power. We often talk about kenosis, self-emptying love, as modeled in the life of Christ, as modeled in Jesus on the cross, giving his life for others, giving power continually over for others, and that we as followers of Jesus are called to do the same. I would argue that in being given the time off, whether it's feudalistic Europe or the slavery in the South, Perhaps, even in modern times, when our employers give us a couple of days off, if we've earned it, it is a form of pseudo-kenosis. I think what the slaves did was a beautifully subversive thing. But what the slave masters were offering was pseudo-kenosis. It was a fake emptying of themselves. They pretended to give up power for a short time because they knew at the end of the day, they were still holding the reins over the lives of these people that they happened to own. I wanted to quickly add that the account of this history is found in The Battle for Christmas by Stephen Nissenbaum. It's one of my favorite books that I've ever read on Christmas, and it offers numerous accounts on the development of modern Christmas, especially within the context of America. So what I'm interested in is if we, in our modern societies, can seek to find a way to tear down the power that work has over our lives. How we all pay into and give our lives to a system of ceaseless striving and work. Is there a way out? Is there a way to subvert the system, to tear down this power? I have a few ideas. I'm not an economist. I'm not somebody who is high up in society and can make lots of decisions, but I've been given a small platform, so I'm going to speak to some of the ideas that have occurred to me over the years. And what's interesting to me is that they've occurred to me as I've studied Christmas and as I've realized that this holiday, in many ways, is about taking time off from work, having a long break. Okay, Employers, how might you be able to give the maximum time off for your employees during the holidays? Is that possible? Can you stagger people's hours so that certain people get a big chunk of time off? Three days, five days, 
seven days? Is there a way to stagger it off? Maybe your employees can have three days off, three days working, and three days off again. And you can do that for a couple of weeks. Is it possible? You know, the biggest principle that I would want to emphasize is how can you show them that you cherish them as living beings created in God's image and not as worker units whose value is found in productivity and profit margins? How might you, as a boss, as a business owner, as a manager, proclaim the new heavens and the new earth by giving them an unhindered time to rest? One where they don't feel penalized or guilted for taking time off. What if, what if as a society, we learned to see the inherent goodness in setting aside times each year to do nothing but rest, enjoy ourselves, and seek God unburdened from the pressures of daily life? Is that possible? I have another challenge for business owners and those who employ people underneath them, particularly if you're living a life vastly comfortable than your employees. How might you give your people the financial freedom to feel like they can live comfortably for a week or more during the holidays or a couple of times a year without feeling like it will financially ruin them? Can you learn to live on less money? Could you live in a smaller house? Could you and your executives learn to live on less so that your employees might be blessed every year with true seasons of extended rest? To be clear, I'm not asking that you just give them vacations that they've earned incrementally by working enough hours. No. Instead, this is time that you've given to them because resting is good and relieving people of the burden to work will actually motivate them to want to work again. I heard this phrase recently. It says, if God is always at work in the world, we don't have to be. It's okay to rest. We are not messiahs. I want to put out the idea that by resting, we proclaim that God's kingdom has come. To simply breathe in and to breathe out demonstrates that we are here, created in God's image, and that doing so is enough of an act of worship to justify our existence. What I'd really like to do, but as you think about Christmas, as you think about your family's traditions, whatever it is, I want to spark your imagination by encouraging you to rest. When we slow down, when we remove ourselves from the harness of work and allow our minds to unclutter, that's when the ideas begin to come. Have you ever experienced this? Aaron Sorkin, uh, one of the world's most famous playwrights, he's known for doing the West Wing, he's infamously known for taking showers and writing. When he gets into a block as a writer, he goes and takes another shower, even if it's the second, third, or fourth shower of the day. I'm a fan of showers myself. I know what he means. I do the same thing. My mind begins to unclutter when I'm just relaxed and the water's pouring over me. The same thing happens when I take a walk. My mind relaxes, it unclenches, it unravels, and that's when the creativity begins. I come up with all manner of ideas when I'm relaxed and I'm not frantic. When also I'm well rested, that's when the great ideas come. I'm drawing from a bank of rest. When we've rested, our imaginations begin to wander and begin to think of the world as it could be. We begin to think of the things in our lives that are truly important. We, think, we begin to think of the relationships that we've, we've, we've neglected. 
maybe the people that we've hurt that we need to go and speak to. Resting can lead to reconciliation. When we're not constantly bombarded with the need to work, that's when our creative pursuits, that's when the passions of our lives begin to gain the focus that they need. What is it for you? I'm curious. I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to hear some feedback. I'd love to hear some stories, eventually, of people that have rested during Christmas and it created an environment that brought your family together in ways that they hadn't for years. People that have rested during Christmas as a season and you finally finished that project. Maybe it's a house project. Maybe you've written that novel. (laughs) Here's the beautiful paradox. Resting hibernating, doing nothing, causes us to awaken. It helps us to realize all that we should be doing. And this is all bound up in the principle of resting. On the seventh day, God rested. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We put down our tools of work for a time, for a day, for a season, and we allow ourselves to grow fallow, a field that's just sitting there doing nothing. And it's in those moments that the seeds of creativity rise up once more. They burst to life. This is also the beauty found in the seasons. It's what the seasons themselves tell us. Uh, Winter in the northern hemisphere is a time of doing nothing. The ground lies dormant and waits for spring to come again. The same thing can happen to us if we learn how to rest during the winter season, during Christmas at Christ's coming. In winter, the sun shines less. We slow down. We gather together in our homes, in communities. We worship together, eat together, play together, sing together, and serve one another. We allow ourselves to see ourselves not as finding our identity in work, but instead in the core joys of our existence. By resting, we come to find out all that we should be doing all the time anyway. Resting, Sabbathing, holidaying reminds us that time is short, limited, finite. And it causes us to recenter ourselves and to remind ourselves of our core principles and the very things we should be called to with our lives. Now, as I wrap up, you might be thinking, this is all well and good. You've you've given us something to think about regarding resting, but you haven't offered us anything practical. Well, I'm not exactly going to do that. I'm leaving you instead pondering what resting has to do with Christmas. But here's what I can do. There's a few books that I would recommend on Sabbathing, many practical tips or reflections on what living a lifestyle of rest looks like. For example, I'd recommend A.J. Swoboda's Subversive Sabbath or The Sabbath World by Judith Shulevitz. But then, of course, there's the classic text, The Sabbath, by Abraham Joshua Heschel. All of these would be great books if you want a place to start in helping shape your life around rest and Sabbathing. Hopefully that gives you something to ponder, and hopefully that motivates you to find some time to rest this coming Christmas. You'll hear from me again if you are a Patreon subscriber in my next Christmas Tent Talk, which has to do with how resting at Christmas relates to the war on Christmas. And it's probably not the war that you most readily think of. It's not the war of secular society against Christians. Instead, 
It's the time in history when other Christians were against Christmas. And I think you're going to find it pretty intriguing the answer why. It maybe isn't quite what you're expecting. If you're interested, you can catch that on Patreon. Stephen Backhouse, Natasha Beckles. Hello. They've just listened to me go on about uh, Christmas and resting. And now I'm curious what uh, what any feedback, responses, any reactions that you all might have. Natasha, is there anything that you want to offer? Yeah, it was great to listen to you, you know, talking about the celebrating of the um, 12 days of Christmas and those foundational principles. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a tradition as you're going to take us through the journey of it. And I love the idea that, you know, the three secondary principles in some sense come from this place of rest. You know, you really helped us get an idea of the place of these 12 days. Immediately, my mind was thinking about the fact that, you know, how Christianity came to be in Western European kind of cultures and this kind of, oh, they've got this winter festival, we're going to sit on top of it and take over it that way. And so my mind was a little bit wandering into, you know, where, where, where does that go? I like the question that you asked also about, you know, whether we're, how different are we to the peasants at that time in terms of the <laughs> amount of work that was going on? Sleep deprived. Yeah, man, this is, this is our story, isn't it? So is our situation different? You know, maybe physically we're not experiencing that, but, you know, on certainly on these kind of psychological levels, that's certainly there. And, and I like the idea of the rest as a gift from God. That was, that was a beautiful thought as well. And, and I suppose, you know, when you started to connect that to the kind of African-American experience, the contrast of that, I'm not African-American, but I do certainly come from the part of the Caribbean where white supremacy, chattel slavery were first invented and first tested out. And it made me think about the kind of what you were talking about, how these kind of celebrations came about. And uh, my mind immediately went back to the many years that I've spent in the Caribbean. And we have what we call our carnivals, which are called mass, playing mass, which brought me back to Christmas mass and that whole idea that you were sharing that it, it you know it's for one day a year the people who are most oppressed are allowed to poke fun at this group and and the futileness of it in the sense that it doesn't actually exist and how different that is to what Christmas actually means in the sense that you know this baby born into actually is detonating something completely different and almost that it's a false Christmas this whole kind of idea that um you could have one day where the you know the status quo is turned upside down when we're actually meant to be celebrating the birth of this child who changes everything forever can we talk about that a little bit I Natasha I'd like to talk about that with so Chris I'll admit when I was listening to you and you started talking about the slaves and the masters giving the slaves the day off. And, 
and you were talking about, I was like, does Chris think this is a good thing? Like, no, <laughs> I was nervous. Were you, were, Natasha, were you nervous as well? Because it sounded like Chris was like saying, oh, isn't it great that the masters gave the slaves the day off and that they did all this. And I was like, Chris, this isn't a good thing at all. And then thankfully, Chris pulled it out with, he kind of pulled out of the nosedive by talking about pseudo kenosis and how this was the appearance of change that really didn't change anything. Was it, my, was was like, it the way I was speaking? Like I, it sounded like I was enthusiastic. Is I was nervous. It sounded like you were, you were enthusiastic about how, what a good influence Christmas rest was on the, the African American slave experience. So I was like, no, Chris, this is not good. But then you, you, you pulled it out at the end, which is so, yeah, like Natasha was just saying, like the, this idea that that carnival kind of feels like, uh, freedom, but 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 actually, it just kind of lets people run around loose for a day, and then the system—it's part of the system, right? It's actually part of keeping people in their proper place. Yeah. Well, let me say something really quickly. The, the the book that I read—it's called *The Battle for Christmas*. It makes this right. parallel between European traditions, African, like truly African traditions of mockery, uh, or Caribbean mockery, with what happened in the South. And how it's so bizarre that here we have America, like the, the quote unquote new world. And in the South, these hierarchical traditions were still in existence, whereas it didn't happen like that way in the North so much. Yeah. So I just I, I'm fascinated with that. I, I'm curious, Natasha. Yeah. Can you let me into that? Like what what was that like? What traditions do you carry with you? Because for me, something seems just so insidious about the whole thing which is you, you create a mock king and you give the fool like power for a day. And at the whole time, the powers that be are still in control the whole time. I'm fascinated by the whole thing. As an American, I, these are completely foreign kind of traditions for me. So I don't fully understand how they would operate on a year to year basis. So I'm just curious, what, what, what perspective can you offer us? Well, I, I have a friend of mine, his name's Carlton Turner, and he came out with a book, I think it was last year, or maybe it was this year, called Overcoming Self-Negation, um, The Church and Junkanoo in Contemporary Bahamian Society. And it's about how, you know, he really tries to address what he sees as this, this phenomenon of, of self-negation. He's, he's talking about how there's a tendency for people to in the aftermath of slavery and colonialism, not to accept themselves and the violence of that that has come and how um, the church is seen as um, sacred and Junkanoo is seen as kind of, which is the name of their carnival, is seen as um, secular. And these two worlds don't kind of have anything to do with each other. And, and the problem is that as I was listening to it, I was thinking about this book and thinking about the fact that actually, when we allow work to, uh, this God of work to abuse us in that way, it has to negate us. And so it brought me back to this idea of the Sabbath as this gift from God and Walter Brueggemann's point about it being, you know, um, what was the word? Resistance. Like resistance. Yeah, and, good, right? and it just triggered so many things because when yeah. I did my undergraduate in Caribbean <laughs> studies and history, one of the resistance points that African enslaved people used was something called kwashi, playing kwashi. And you started to go towards it, actually, this kind of playing fool to catch wise 
that you have got this oppressive structure that already dehumanizes you and thinks that you don't have the intelligence to understand the power of your own situation. And so you play a particular role that frustrates that situation. So you're, you're, a lot of the language in the new world around Africanness was around us being lazy, which is ironic, given that we're all working. <laughs> but in terms of what playing Kwashi, it comes from, um, I think the Akan word, um, Kwesi, which means born on a Sunday, which actually in the Akan means handsome, and well-rounded young man, but it was bastardized in the Caribbean and became a kind of criticism from the the powers that be that you were being lazy. But they didn't realize that it was actually resistance, that if I control my labor, you do not get to to dictate to me. And And the fact that you think I'm stupid is really your justification for your violence, but also that you can't see my humanity in my situation, but I still know who I am. So it's a huge resistance aspect. So to to be aligning those particular ideas together and seeing that actually there was common ground here that I, I will control my labor and I will rest and I will allow you to think that I am being lazy but actually what I am doing is undermining slavery every day, every single day. Yeah. And it, it just made me think how powerful that was. And, and, you know, when I was doing my undergraduate, I wasn't a Christian, but how much more nuance it gives to me having the two, thinking about the theology of the two, the theology of Sabbath in, in the midst of what is, you know, hugely violent, negating, anti-human work, God, that we have to look at the fact that, you know, the Protestant understanding of work is what we are living under still, (laughs) you know, it's that understanding that um, you had to, it's it's funny, you know, you've got uh, Martin Luther telling us, you know, faith alone, Bible alone, Jesus alone, and it's not by works, but the entire Protestant movement comes out and it's just working. And that work ethic has shaped the culture that we live in now. And so our God is this God of work, and we're not able to rest, which has made us like the peasants that you, we started off at, but it just in our minds. And it, even thinking about this pandemic, if you have a disability, if you have like social issues, that social situation that means that it would be better for you to work at home, you could not get your employee to allow you to work from home. This pandemic has created a liberation day that you can now have hybrid working you can work from home and and how much more inclusive that is of people who have different you know disability needs or whatever how much more that has been without this pandemic we would have never got to this point oh my gosh but you can see what's happening though natasha like in london where you live you, the the office buildings they're they're filling up again like people are the command is coming from on high is like, no, we, we got to control your bodies. You have, we need to see you at all times. And uh, you're actually seeing that happen, that, that the old system is coming back in. You yeah. are seeing it happen. But then Bojo says, everybody work from home. So we're back to stage one. So, so that's what I was going to say. I think that's beautiful what you're saying about other people being able to work. But the downside of it is like work now never ends. It, it fills all right. the other spaces. Like I can always call upon the worker to be there, to be there to, you know, it's like at all hours of the day. So again, it's all about how do we find those rhythms of true rest? If, if work always has a call in our lives, you know. <laughs> it's certainly about boundaries. It's about getting those boundaries in the deepest way. 
I remember that. I'm not talking about anyone else. I was a workaholic. I worked in a school and I would be, I was driving home. So I would get there at 7 a.m. and be finishing at 7 a.m., 7 p.m. All of those things, but realizing that actually, is that the best way for, to get the best work out of me? What you, what you pointed out is that, you know, from the overflow of that rest, comes all of this creative space I've you know listeners might know know I've recently had a bit of COVID it wasn't the worst example but it it gave me total rest and you know these creative ideas that your your brain has got the space that the Lord has the space to talk to you about is just a beautiful thing and so I'm I'm you know we the potential from this is that if we can learn different rhythms and still set boundaries so that we keep rest this could could bring us a, a an all new kind of enlightenment period or whatever of creativity in terms of us thinking about how we move forward from this 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 last two years. I was curious, Chris. I was struck by your comment about like what happens if we don't give ourselves the sort of rest that Natasha is just talking about. That it comes out in other ways. That and and you suggested that it co- it can come out in addictions like sort of false like your body's gonna get relief somehow i guess yeah. is the way you're saying where did that idea come from that's a that's a fascinating idea where's what's the story know, behind that i don't know if this is me I, this is actually what i'm actually i'm really curious about this so let's say we're serving the god of work or the power of work and we're so miserable all the time then when we're finally giving given a little bit of release what do we do we just indulge in whatever way that we can to get some relief. Um, by the way, I, I have further thoughts on this, and I want to talk about it. And maybe my uh, on the Patreon, I want to talk about it. But Protestants hated Christmas and were against Christmas because of all the debauchery. People were just letting go, not just in the South and America, but but in in England and in Europe and stuff. And so all the Protestants came along and like like they were like, "What is happening? Like this is not good for us." And there's other studies on this on like the aspect of carnival the effects of it on a society i think there's some beauty to letting loose and i also i'm curious about how if we have given ourselves over to work all the time when we finally get a chance to like have a break we just indulge in ways that are not good for us um so we're not truly learning how to rest because so then we're just serving another god we're serving the god of self-indulgence or something like bacchanalia that. Yeah. yeah, bacchanalia, exactly. Well, this so, is why you, you talked about Sabbath as a discipline or the disciples of Sabbath. And I thought, yeah, that's interesting because it's not, it's not as easy as just saying stop working. No. And, and now when we all are working from home, it's not as easy as you actually have to have kind of a muscle memory, a, a, an ability mm. to rest, right? Like it, you have to be mature. <laughs> and I guess what you're describing, Chris, is that kind of uh, immature adolescent form of rest, which is just self-indulgence. And maybe there's something else that we're developing so i would say it's immature but then we've codified it in in our in yearly rituals so it, it becomes part right. of our culture right so right i mean do we say that is I, i'm i i uh, i do not want to disparage our traditions necessarily but i do have concerns with carnival as a as a as a straight-laced white protestant male i go hmm what is happening there with carnival <laughs> like <laughs> like i have i have no insights into that because it's so foreign to me i'm curious natasha do you, what what do we make of that what 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 should a a pietistic white guy like because they're making fun of you chris they're they're making making fun of you (laughs) i i have as a fairly newly ordained priest have every intention of the next time i touch ground with my parents land um 
jumping in the carnival absolutely because I have got far too much to celebrate just the journey and they recently we're, we're the youngest republic Barbados is the Barbados I was gonna say you're Bajan yeah right yes we have very Bajan and in that sense I want to celebrate because I see the history I see the moment I see the the kind of the spiritual the the legal aspects of all of that come together for me and I want to touch you know it's like picking up soil in Ghana or something like this it, it just really recognizing these moments that have come about that are about um a changing of something that I would never be able to have the eloquence to explain but I see it in that sense so I certainly will be doing that um, <laughs> and for me I look at priesthood as being the sacred party organizer that's the, that's that's in my understanding of oh, what that's is cool. gathering right? that's of the mass you know that's the whole point I mean there is a huge celebration that involves food lord of the dance all of that around there and the bit of us that has become so square protestant dry out in that sense that it's killing the party why are you killing the party the entirety of creation is here at the pleasure of the lord and the overflow of his love and that that the secular secular i understand that the word secular originally meant this second period of time since time. Christ came so it all belongs to him so I suggest we have a party that's my have, have I like that idea the party. priest the priest leading the party you're not partying against the priest the priest is in the front the first one on the right dance floor. in the front I ordered the food and and I booked the DJ and Jesus Jesus got drunk people even more drunk as his first miracle right to be full on the spirit you understand there is there is a difference here. Oh, your your Pentecostal roots are showing, Natasha. You, you're oh, too afraid to admit that Jesus might have got people drunk. Well, he did. That was the wedding. I mean, I don't know if anybody reads the same Bible as I do, but it's like the best wine is oh, to yeah. come. I love it. Yeah. So two two things there, Natasha, which I think really are beautiful. You're making me want to do a PhD thesis on this. Mass as carnival. Mass as carnival and priest as king of fools, uh, you know, you know, it's not so much that the priest or the bishop is the dignified one. Instead, you're the one leading God's people into the celebration, which you have to be a little bit foolish and a little bit undignified to do. Uh, you have to do a little bit of David, man. Do a little. I was going to like say, David. it's like David dancing before the Lord, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to heaven. I expect that we will be having a great time. There will be much to celebrate. There has been much sorrow. So they, I look forward to the joy oh of that. And, and the Protestants in heaven, they're still just sour-faced and like... <laughs> No, no, no. They, they, they get. I'm sure they're getting their groove on now because really, they, they, they'll have to, you know, come to terms with it. And it's about. It is that prodigal son, you know, and the pro, the older brother that is looking at these situations and like, oh, you're not having a party for me. That's the first thing that God does. His son has come back. Have a party. Have a party. And you know, those people that are looking at this and it's like, oh, it should be trim and prim. I'm like, babe, get over yourself. <laughs> yeah yeah rest rest is a serious business that you shouldn't take too seriously mm. right like you should you should kind of i don't know like you you shouldn't uh micromanage it and control it and yet you should do it and you should make sure it's protected and safe so I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. There is a, there, you know, we've all been on holidays where somebody's micromanaging every second of it and you're like, rebuke you. 
I I came to chill out. There is going to be a part of, you know, when you've not had freedom, you're going to be reckless with it to start off with. But once it becomes part of who you are, it be, it changes. So, you know, the partying isn't what you want to do. I don't know how many of our listeners when they were younger used to go out to parties, but I spent many times in parties. I enjoyed myself. But there comes a point where actually just being in the club is just not enough. And that rest means different things to you with wisdom, spending time, walking in the park, doing all of these things, going to a museum. All of these things are beautiful things that I use my Sabbath for or just being with people who you know, encourage and build and help you reflect and all of those things. So that comes with age. And I think God is a God, he's a patient God and he walks us through that aspect. And it is sad that we have people that are like, don't do this, don't do that. And they're killing that moment of get pushing through to that moment of Sabbath rest, that deep rest, you know, that the Bible talks about that is the other side. It's it's deeper than just taking the day off. It's really meeting with God in a deep way deeper way you know you know our friend avi the rabbi so you know that i do this podcast called the hyphen and chris does the music for the hyphen as well so he's also involved but uh i i was interviewed by harmony smith who is a a a, a friend of the tent who's been on the tent as a she's a worship leader and she interviewed me and avi specifically about all this stuff about sabbath and rest because she had been reading uh, Herschel, Abraham Herschel, which Chris mentioned in his talk. And I recommend, if I'm going to plug, I'll plug somebody else's podcast. I recommend that you go and listen to Harmony Smith interviewing Ra- uh, Rabbi Avi. I will look it up. Yeah, it's really good. And one of the things, I don't want to spoil all the good things that, that Avi says, but one of the fun things I noticed was of all the things that divide Christians and Jews, it's interesting that the importance of Sabbath was not one of them. Like, that Avi and I just often when we're having our conversation, like we come at the opposite end of things and we sort of notice there's a real fault line. I realized, wow, actually I can, what, what Avi is talking about with the Sabbath is exactly the way that I have learned it and been talking about it as well. It was like a, a thing that united the Jews and the Christians. And it was that idea of like, not Sabbath as a job, but actually as a, as a form of resistance against work, as a form of discipline that leads to freedom I don't know. I really recommend that you listen to that as well as just a bit of further resource. I mean, I had one other question. I guess maybe what I'm curious about, like in the terms of the powers that be, one of the challenges I had is employers truly giving people space as opposed to feeling like, I don't know, you get a little time off here, you get a little time off there. I'm just curious if you had any thoughts on the sense of how businesses, companies can can try to subvert this culture we built for ourselves. Yeah, when you were talking about providing rest as an employee or somebody who sets up structures, if you start if you start an organization or if you're in charge of an organization to build rest into the bake it into the system rather than as the the extra that's kind of the afterthought. And what I was thinking was in terms of, you know that old thing about you got the if you have rocks and sand and you're trying to fill a fill a glass jar you put the rocks in first and then you fill the, and then you pour the sand in because it, it will flow to fill the, the, the gaps, right? But if you do it the other way around, if you just put the sand in first, then you won't, you won't also be able to fit all the rocks in. And, and I wondered wh- whether rest could be like that so that you actually build really significant, what you might even think is extravagant rest into your organization first and then pour everything else in and see what happens. 
for me, I feel like that is a, an, a form of spiritual warfare where you are deliberately making a principality which goes against the it's coming in the opposite spirit to how most people build their principalities which is to put the work and the uh the results in first and then if you're lucky at the end of it we might give you some rest and i i wondered whether it was good to do something the other way around and see what happened and i personally have found that when i built rest into my life significantly built it in it did not affect it does not affect my productivity in fact obviously it makes it better I was thinking, you made me start to think, Chris, about that idea of powers and principalities as an, as an employer or as a manager, what that would look like to build that. And I think it would look something like building rest first and then everything else around. Yeah. I love it. And, and it's about those weekly rhythms, let's say. And, and, and that's maybe my concern with Carnival is that we've created these horrible systems. And then when we're done, we're just like bursting to the seams and we can't take anymore. Um, not that year yearly celebrations are bad but it's that it's that kind of concern which is like we've created this horrible system for ourselves they're not enough you can't have a shitty system and then go what are you complaining about we let you go wild for one day a year like you can't do that you have to have a good system yeah i think it's good to remember that we are spiritual beings with bodies and you know not just bodies that you know this material plane that we're, we're on is not all that we are and and I think that that's the sad aspect that we've lost the kind of mystic of what it is to be human and that to be whimsical that we need that rest not just because our bodies are tired but you can it, it's space to be filled in different ways and um that would be radical that would be absolutely radical if you know but it's one of the things that has been said that if um christian businesses you know in that protestant era had prioritized sabbath more they did it in one way but paid their workers all of there's a lot of things about our world that would be very very different and starts with you if you run a payroll if you're a manager of at least one other person you could do it right now start to do it amen well thanks both of you for having this conversation it was fun you, you, we, we talked about all the interesting aspects of it and uh i'm gonna have to go back and re-listen and make it seem like uh you know like i was too positive on the whole uh you know oh, no, don't change it don't change at all i didn't i i had more faith in you so i was like i was happy to listen all the way and just it was you were sounding like where are we going but it was fine it, was fine. it wasn't that bad really, please Keep people Please, on their edge. And, and, and if it triggers people to think about it that way, you know, in, in yeah. a, to ask that question, that's a good <laughs> critical point as they come yeah. in. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Thanks, Chris, for putting that together. And we will put the extra episodes into the Patreon as well. Thanks and goodbye. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.